The thing about it is that pretty much any doctor would nod their head to what I'm about to say. What happens to patients who are continued to have their bodies propped up on machinery like ventilators and dialysis machines and blood pressure support medications is that they get discharged out of the hospital into uh, what's called a long-term acute care facility. I hate to say it, but I'm, I'm going to be honest, it's a storage facility for bodies that just can't live on their own and yet don't require the intensive amount of care that hospitalized patients require. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Ash Deneef, and today's conversation is about a topic that I actually really enjoy talking about, the end of life. Our guest is Dr. Jessica Zitter, who as well as being an ICU doctor and palliative care specialist, is an author, filmmaker, and advocate for better discussions about how we want our lives to end. In this conversation, we talk about the end of life conveyor belt, as she calls it, why advanced care planning does not equal a meaningful death, and how to navigate conversations of faith and miracles when considering treatment options. For many people listening to this, you'll hear a sound we've all come to know throughout the pandemic, the dreaded video call robo-voice. That couldn't be helped this time, unfortunately, but the content and information in the episode more than make up for it. Now, don't forget, we've got Daniela and Moz on Friday to help keep this conversation going. I'm sure they've got a fun spin on this episode too. And I hope you enjoy this powerful chat with Dr. Jessica Zitter. Hey, Jessica, thanks for joining us on the show today. Very happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And we were just talking about the very strange coincidence that some friends of mine live on a street in Oakland, California, that you used to live on. (laughs) Very small world, huh? Extremely small. Such a beautiful area around there. I remember all the trees and the parks, a lovely area to go walking. Come back and visit. (laughs) <laughs> got to do it. You got to come to Oz as well. I know you've been here once, but get down to Melbourne. I would love to come back to Australia. Hey, so for those of us who don't know your work, can you tell us a bit about what you do and, and uh, yeah, a bit about what you do? Yes, I am a physician. I've been practicing ICU and palliative care medicine, sort of an unusual combination of specialties I know. Mm. Came to palliative care second after having really become somewhat disillusioned with the sort of approach to critical care that we use, sort of very protocolized, I almost call it an end-of-life conveyor belt. And then I found the palliative care movement probably in the early 2000s before it really became anything that people even knew how to spell. And I was lucky enough to be rescued by it and I learned how to practice with a different approach. Instead of thinking about protocols and interventions all the time, I really started thinking more holistically about the patient. And that sent me into a world of storytelling, which is sort of a way that I like to process uh, distress that I'm feeling. And I was feeling some distress about practicing in that type of environment that felt so rote and inhumane. And I started writing a lot and then getting published in sort of 
newspapers and realized that a lot of people wanted to hear these stories about what is happening in these environments, this mystery black box, I'm sick and I go into this building kind of environment. And by sharing those stories first in print and then eventually with my book, Extreme Measures, and then finally in starting to make films, which is what I'm doing a lot more of now, I've lifted the veil on this very, I'd say, mysterious world of healthcare for serious illness and hopefully helped a lot of people, lay people as well as healthcare professionals to sort of process and reflect on what we're doing and start thinking about a different way forward. Mm. Oh, that's great. Hey, can we talk about here the medicalized, process-driven, end-of-life conveyor belt, the term that you use there? Is this just a matter of because you've got lots of patients, you're often seeing people as, as a condition, or is it needing to follow strict processes? How, does that, how did that look when you were having trouble with it? I think it looks, unfortunately, still very similar to, to how it was when I just sort of started reflecting and, and realizing what was going on. But Unfortunately, I don't think it's changed as much as I would have liked, but I think over the past, say, 125 years or so, modern medicine has really learned some truly miraculous things. We've learned how to save lives that otherwise would not be savable. People who could, you know, survive an illness and go back to live a productive, functional life, like people with polio, these young kids who were saved in the 30s and 40s on, on the ventilators. And then, you know, the, the soldiers on the fields of war who were saved from hemorrhage and septic shock. I mean, that was something that really only started happening, you know, in the early 20th century. And what happened as a result of that, humans being as, in, you know, research driven and, and ingenious as they are, is that more and more new techniques for saving lives started to be perfected. And you know, you look at the subspecialization of medicine and you've got people who specialize on the eyeball and the, the retina. You've got people who specialize on the most esoteric pieces of the human body. And what's happened in all of this time is that, and we've developed all sorts of intensive care units, I mean, from down to a digestive diseases intensive care unit, I mean, things that you never would have had before. Hmm. And while we certainly have saved incredible numbers of lives, we've also started, we've used this miraculous technology indiscriminately. We don't have any kind of a way. We, if it's if a little bit is good, then more is better. And we don't think about whether or not it's going to be helpful. We just apply it. And I think that sort of default application of these treatments is has gotten us into trouble because we don't necessarily look at the likelihood of them causing benefit. We just think that the application is the goal. So, for example, you're saying that you know someone might be approaching a a life-limiting illness and without questioning whether or not it's what they want to do, they would just either put themselves or be put onto a, a series of treatments that are more and more invasive? Yes, I think it, you know, really just a whole bunch of different interventions that take over for different organs as they start to fail. And it is true, it's not just the doctors who are doing this, it's sort of an expectation uh, between the doctor-patient relationship that this is all about just continuing to do things. and that somehow we have this concept that is going to lead us to this perpetual life. I call it this fantasy of perpetual life, which I think mm. is as old as the hills. The problem is now we've got tools that can trap us in very in situations that we never could have dreamed of before. So it sounds like you're saying that life at any cost shouldn't be the goal. Well, I think the goal should be whatever an individual person wants it to be. The problem is that we're not talking about what it looks like in an honest uh, way. So people go into this thinking that 
that there's only going to be a positive outcome. They don't necessarily have a vision for the negative impact. For example, people don't understand that there is this rising public health crisis worldwide called chronic critical illness, uh, a, a condition where human bodies are essentially dependent on machines and get really sent to long-term acute care facilities where they live attached to machines until they die. It's rising at a very disturbing rate. It is pretty striking. The increased number of people as our population ages who get set onto this end-of-life conveyor belt and then go into this experience that they could never have envisioned and it was never clarified it was never shown to them because as a doctor you're sort of like well that's impolite or that's scary or why would i scare my patient mm. and talk about this but the fact is people just don't understand that 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 reality of that sort of end stop of the end of life conveyor belt and what that can look like and I think if more people did have that visual and did understand that, they would say, there's no way I want to be risking the possibility of that happening. And then that could lead to a much more honest conversation between doctor and patient that may result in different things besides this default application of, of treatments. Before this interview, I managed to watch Extremis, your film on, on Netflix, and I want to talk about it a little bit more in a second. But there's a moment in there where you're explaining to the family of a patient that if they are put onto a breathing machine to help them continue breathing, they'll be transferred to a, a different facility that is mainly patients who are, have some sort of uh, mechanical assistance. Could you maybe paint the picture of what these facilities are like? I know you're saying that you don't often get the chance to be so blunt about it, but could, can you share what, what does it look like if somebody is placed in a, a scenario like that? The thing uh, about it is that pretty much any doctor... Um, would nod their head to what I'm about to say. This is sort of a well-hidden secret, and I can explain why it's hidden secret, but what happens to patients who become progressively weak and who are continued to have their bodies propped up on machinery like ventilators and dialysis machines and blood pressure support medications is that they get discharged out of the hospital into uh, what's called a long-term acute care facility these are essentially buildings that house many patients, <clears throat> some of whom might have a chance of getting stronger and then getting liberated off of these machines, but most of whom will not. Hmm. And I hate to say it, but in, in my book, Extreme Measures, I describe it as, uh, I hate to say it, but I'm, I'm going to be honest, it's a storage facility hmm. for bodies that just can't live on their own and yet don't require the intensive amount of care that hospitalized patients require. I, I hate to use such a crass word, but I really think that we need honesty here about what happens. And we need honesty about the rising number of people for whom that will be an endpoint, that they will live that way until they die. It's rising and it's alarming. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not how I want to die when my time comes. I suspect it's not the way most people would want to. Yeah, I, I don't think that's how I would want to go either. So in terms of avoiding that situation being the default, how do individuals and families kind of have the conversations and, and get to a place where they can look at their alternatives? Well, it's a really important question. There's been a sort of a change in the way we've been talking about it actually quite recently. You know, there's a whole industry for advanced care planning 
that has really arisen over the past, I'd say mostly 10 years, maybe 15 years, where people have started to say, this is unacceptable. We know about these bad deaths. We don't want these bad deaths. We want to take control over our lives. And so we want to do everything we can to prevent this kind of thing from happening to us. Those who are in the know, again, as I said, most people don't know, but there are people mm. who have somehow learned this information about <clears throat> what can happen and, and say, we, we don't want to do this. So there's a lot of energy that's gone into saying you've got to have an advanced directive. I don't know in Australia if you guys have advanced directives or what you use. Yeah, yeah, we do. You do. Do you have things like post forms like out of hospital DNR uh, forms and things like that? I am not qualified to answer that question, yeah. but I know that advanced care planning is being promoted here yeah. as well. And it's a wonderful concept and I'm not in any way saying that it, it's not uh, a good idea. I think it makes total sense to prepare people for all the stuff that I'm talking about and, and have people start thinking in advance. But the, and it may be too complicated to have this conversation right now, but what we found is that the data on advanced care planning has not been as encouraging as we would like to see. It hasn't resulted in a significant change in people achieving goal concordant care, meaning the people who engage in advanced care planning activities haven't had a much higher rate of having care that is consistent with their goals, mm. which suggests that filling out advanced directives may not be the end all be all. It may not be the final answer to what we need to do here. And I think, you know, people change their minds, people, things you can't foresee when you're healthy, all of the scenarios that can happen. It's hard to make plans when you're healthy about what you're going to want as you begin to get sicker. Hmm. And what, what looks like is more effective is a more effective way to approach this is to say, get a general sense of who you are and what's important. Are you the kind of person for whom, and there are many people who are, every single heartbeat matters regardless of how you're living. You wouldn't, my, you would prefer to keep your heart beating even if you were living in the way that I described. And that's a legitimate personal value, but you should think about that. There are many people who would say, no, if I can't recognize my, my family, if I'm cognitively so impaired that I can't recognize them, I don't want you to use heroic interventions to keep me alive and having those kind of high level conversations maybe referring it to a family what about aunt sally and the way things went in her life and her death you know really having mm. family conversations around that issue is can be very helpful to get a very high level sense of who a person is and another thing that can be very very helpful is identifying who it is that that you would want to speak for you if you could not speak for yourself that's a very valuable activity and that is part of the sort of classic advanced care planning activities that we, that are referred to so that those kinds of activities i think are very important and the the real key is figuring out how when you're in the moment of serious illness in the moment of being in the intensive care unit how will you conduct yourself what kinds of questions will you ask how will you stay true to figuring out how to interact with the healthcare team so you get the information as best you can that's going to inform you about what you want to do next. Mm -hmm. And so it's really about preparing people to enter into that world and ask the right questions so that they can make decisions in the moment. It's not easy work. This is not these are not easy answers or easy conversations. But 
that's what we have to aim for is having them as best as we can have them. So it sounds like you might be saying that advanced care directives by themselves don't work, but they can start a conversation and start you thinking about what will happen if you do get to that place where you need to make a tough decision. That's right. I think that's exactly well said, more succinctly said than I put it. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, did you know we launched a new show this season? Hello, I'm here with Daniela Greenwood. And I'm here with Maury Voicey-Barlin. That's right, Daniela and Maury are back and they're joining us every Friday for their new show, Who Cares? Where they'll be taking a quizzical look at some of Aged Care's challenges and exploring what they mean for all of us working in the industry. I'm really stumped by how what the resolution is here because I think there's a lot to dig into. You would have been better working at McDonald's, Maury, because I they've got a good set. I could have been somebody, Daniela. <laughs> I could have been somebody. You are a somebody, Maury. You, and the more I learn about you, you're an amazing oh, somebody. Oh, thank you. I think the same. It's a double dose of podcast fun each week and you can find it right here in the Ace Feed every Friday. You're going to be the new Minister of Ageing if it's the last thing I do. Talking about the film Extremist then, there's a lot of moments there where you're working with patients who aren't able to communicate and the family members are stepping in to convey what they believe the wishes of the individual would be. There's some really difficult moments where there's one family in particular that comes to mind that disagrees with a decision to disconnect their loved one because of religious grounds and they're holding out for a miracle and saying maybe because of your medical training you don't believe in miracles but I still believe. How do you get around these conversations that are wrapped up with faith? It's a very good question and and by the way the, the next movie that I'm making is about the work of my mentor and dear friend chaplain Betty Clark who you see for, as she puts it, six seconds in Extremis, but she's going to be the focus of this next film. Cool. And what I've learned in working very closely with Betty about language that is used by people of faith sometimes, not always, but sometimes, that so frequently doctors tend to just have bias about. They hear someone say, I believe in miracles, and they say, ah, you know what, it's not even worth talking about the possibility of withdrawing or withholding treatments. Let's just do, might as well do everything. It's not worth engaging. Hmm. And what I've learned is that that is a nonsense (laughs) response. Just because people say words doesn't mean you really understand what they're saying. You really have to have a curiosity and you have to ask more, what does a miracle look like to you? And stay with them, stay connected and really stay curious and let them know that you're there because you care about their best interest and the best outcome for them and forge a relationship with them built on curiosity and compassion and what i have found is almost always what you might perceive as oh this person doesn't ever want to talk about anything except full court press is wrong and that people are just saying i don't want to be abandoned i want my god will not abandon me and please don't abandon me either as the doctor and the healthcare team and i think when people start to feel like you really are there with them and you're not going to abandon them and you care about them and people do process what you're saying and come to decisions that often are really in sync with what the healthcare team is recommending. Not always. And and in that situation that you see in the film, that didn't happen. But Hmm. most of the time it does. And I think we give ourselves a pass as healthcare providers, particularly physicians, 
if we say, oh, it's not worth having that conversation with that person because it's always worth having more of a conversation and asking what is a miracle? What are you hoping for? What are you wishing for? And most of the time you realize that it's not, it's not what you thought that they want them to be completely restored to full life. People realize when someone's sick and it just staying in the conversation, staying in the relationship. And that is what leads to the most therapeutic outcome. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Something that the film captures really well, I think, is the emotional toll of engaging in lots of these conversations. And there's a few shots of you standing against a wall, looking a bit overwhelmed by it all. I imagine for our listeners who are working in aged care and probably working with people who are moving towards the end of their lives or seeing a lot of death in their day-to-day -day work, these sorts of conversations and these environments can be quite exhausting. How do you navigate those sorts of spaces? Well said. It, it is exhausting, but I'll tell you one thing. What's more exhausting is withdrawing and just becoming another technician on the end of life conveyor belt. That is much more mm. exhausting for me than having human to human interactions with patients and families and really getting deep into the grief, acknowledging the grief, confronting the grief, confronting the uncertainty that is a part of healthcare and, and serious illness and engaging in, in a relational approach to decision-making, that's less exhausting to me than uh, just stepping back and, and just continuing to do this work that I found to be very morally distressing, doing things to people that I knew were not going to benefit them and that were actually causing harm. Well, I wonder then, because you've, you've written that you got into medicine because you wanted to be a hero, and you describe these sort of life-saving moments in ICU and that, that was kind of what you're imagining. Has your definition of being a hero changed a bit through your work? I would say 180 degrees. I mean, not completely, because of course I think you can never deny that saving someone's life is heroic. It is heroic. But I've also, I, I guess I've expanded my definition of what heroism is. I think that having a human connection when things feel hopeless and terrible or having a human connection when somebody is so different from you or you don't understand them or you don't like them or mm -hmm. those are the kinds of things that feel to me to be the act of true heroism in being a healthcare provider is really finding your humanity and connecting with another person's humanity and that to me is is a true heroism more so and more difficult than following a protocol on an end-of-life conveyor belt. I like as well that that sounds contrary to the tough mentality of what makes a hero, that you push through no matter the costs and you, you pull all-nighters to get somebody through this. Maybe the, the source of heroism is your vulnerability and your ability to step into situations that are very difficult and painful for everybody. I, I think so. I mean, I think that's what I've learned. I, I also, you know, didn't necessarily want to engage with people's grief and suffering in the early days of my career. I just wanted to add value by doing something. And what I learned and what I, you know, again, I, I think the most painful pieces of that were just watching and observing the suffering and feeling disconnected from it. That just was so devastating to me as a human being. And when I now step into the messiness with people and step into my humility and my uncertainty and my humanness and my non 
godly there's a sort of concept of physician as god and i i reject that i think it, it's destructive for everybody involved mm. thank you for uh, explaining the you've recently released a film caregiver a love story about your friend bambi deciding to take herself off the end of life conveyor belt and how her partner rick became her full-time carer pretty much overnight it, it seems like he wasn't so much prepared for it but just thrust into the role can you tell us a bit about making the film and, and what you've learned through the process? Oh my gosh, <laughs> so much. <laughs> well, let me, let me just first start by saying that that film happened by mistake. And it was also not intended to be about family caregiver burden. It was intended to be about how great, you know, stepping off the end of life conveyor belt is and going into hospice, that that's sort of I had this vision and this fantasy, I think, a different kind of fantasy of, of a good death at home that I sort of assumed would, would always be the case. You send someone home on hospice and it's going to be a happy ending. And so I wasn't really planning to make a film. I was just, as soon as Bambi got into hospice, her quality of life turned up. She was so much happier and more comfortable and she felt like she had a new lease on life. And she uh, invited me in to film it. She knew I was doing some filming around Extremis, which was just being released right around the time. And so we came in to film her again in an attempt to celebrate the beauty of a hospice and, and to show what a beautiful death she was gonna have. And it was really after Bambi had died, a year after Bambi had died, that I had all this footage and I started editing it. And I looked at the first edits and I said, oh my gosh, this isn't the story I thought I was telling. I thought this was gonna be about beauty of hospice and it ended up being about Rick. It was so obvious that it was about her husband and about the challenges that caregiving brought for him. And what it made me realize, I learned about the fact that there are things that happen outside of the hospital that I didn't even know about and that I stumbled into by mistake by making this film. I mean, family caregiver burden, uh, the lack of support for these people, this growing number of people who are caring for their loved ones at home is not something that we think about when we're in the hospital. We're so focused on the patient and we're so focused on what happens inside the walls of the hospital that we're not thinking, again, holistically about what's happening mm -hmm. after we discharge this patient. And it was only because I was in the home with them that I saw this. And there's a scene in the film where my mouth is hanging open in almost a comical way as I'm hearing Rick tell me how little support he's getting. Mm. And by the way, this was a wonderful hospice. This was not because the hospice was inadequate. This is not a film to throw hospice under the bus because hospice did a wonderful job for Bambi and Rick. Bambi would never have been able to be home those last nine weeks had it not been for hospice and they were wonderful. You know, when people want to blame, you know, everyone wants to find a reason why, why did Rick suffer? It must have been hospice. They shouldn't hospice have cared for them more. Hospice did a wonderful job there. What we don't understand is that hospice is not, it's not their purview to do the kinds of things that a caregiver needs. They're not there to change diapers. They're not there to do laundry. They're not there to shop or clean out the refrigerator. And Rick needs that. And so do every other caregiver in the world. We're having this demographic shift in America, I suspect in Australia too, where there are more and more aging people, there are smaller families, families are scattered and dispersed, and there are just not enough people to take care of people who need care in the home. And so the burden, this huge burden is falling on a, a smaller number of people and it's breaking them. Yeah, it looks very powerful, just like the other films. 
that you've got out online. I'll send it to you. Please, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. There's a quote that uh, that you've shared on your, your social media but in a similar vein, which I just wanted to share here, that it's from Rosalind Carter, the f- former first lady, Jimmy Carter's wife. There are only four kinds of people in the world. Those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need caregivers. And I think that really tacks on nicely to what you're saying about demographics are shifting, more and more people are needing care, and the number of people who can provide it is actually not keeping up. That's right. And one out of five Americans is a, is a family caregiver. I mean, that is a shocking number. And that mm. is, that's 53 million Americans as of 2020. That was the count in 2020. In 2015, it was 44 million Americans. So this number is shocking. It is rising fast. And we have got to do something about it on a national level. If you've been reading the newspaper, you probably don't read as much about American politics. There's this Build Back Better plan that Joe Biden has desperately been trying to pass. Mm. And it was going to include all sorts of support for family caregivers and and parents of children and and child care and, and all sorts of income tax credits for people to sort of support our social safety net. And it started out at a 400, I think $440 billion dollars went down to 173 and now it's faltering if it's going to pass at all and we've got people who you know in our congress who are not seeing the importance the critical importance of having a social safety net you see it in australia and i applaud you we don't have we do not have an adequate social safety net in this country and caregivers are just one example of the people who suffer from that well we, though we do have a safety net in australia i think that attitude that caregivers, whether they're family caregivers or professional caregivers, will just absorb the sort of extra weight and the extra time and that that's what they're there for. I think that attitude is quite pervasive in our politics as well, that you signed up for it. Good luck to you. Yeah, it's unfortunately, you know, the average caregiver does this for four and a half years. Maybe they can afford to, for four and a half years, pay for 24-7 care to support a caregiver who's living alone with an aging spouse. Maybe they can afford that. I don't no, that's a lot of money. Yeah, well. Hey, Jessica, we've we've covered a lot today. Before we go, I wanted to just call out a few of the things that people can look at. So there's Extremis, which is on Netflix. There's Caregiver, A Love Story, which they can find on your website. And you have a new film coming out shortly? Yes. it's and We're just actually at the beginning of working on it. It's called The Chaplain of Oakland. And it is based on the life and work of Chaplain Betty Clark, who I work with at Highland Hospital in, in Oakland. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Jessica. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Don't forget that each Friday, we've got a fresh episode of our new show, Who Cares?, in which Daniela and Maury take another look at the ideas we've been discussing in today's episode and how they might affect all of us working in the aged care industry. It's fun, thought-provoking, and just a little bit silly. And the good news is it's all right here in the podcast feed. So you don't have to click anywhere else. But if you want to make sure you don't miss out, hit the subscribe button and you'll find out exactly when that episode is available. Anyway, we'll see you next week.